Hi, Kim. Hi, Knut. Wow. A lot of stuff going on in the UN Global Compact Network Norway these days, huh? At least there's a lot of new members coming in. So we just crossed 220, I think. Uh, that's 223. Cool. 223. Okay, so it's almost a doubling in a year. So we are really proud of that, of course. I think then it's, it's 223 today. And there's actually three new more members, new businesses coming into the network, wanting to be part of the the work we are doing uh, in the Norwegian context. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I think we're on a on a good track now, also with the science-based targets. But I think that will be a conversation for another episode. But today, we're talking to two very special people. Yeah, today, who are we uh, talking to? Yeah, we have the what should I say then uh, the king of sustainability, perhaps uh, the guy himself, Paul Polman. Uh, Twenty years back, he was one of the absolutely leading figures in saying that we could actually do good for uh, people and planet at the same time as we're doing prosperity and profit. And I think the interesting part of this is he talks a lot about what it takes to be a leader and be one of the first to do these changes that are necessary or, or to commit to this new way of thinking, going from shareholders to stakeholders and cutting out the short-termism that has defined a lot of capitalism for the last 20 30 years yeah, and i'm not least saying that it's the you know it's the hard facts that actually shows that this is the way forward and uh, he brings of course in uh, in valerie keller that is uh, yes from the oxford side business school so she brings in you know the that side of the the research side of things into the podcast today um she is also working closely with paul polman on the imagine uh, ceo network right yeah and i think that's like the great thing he could have retired or they could have retired he he probably he had a very successful life as a businessman but he has decided to use his time and energy on how can you say pushing this agenda forward and and has created imagine and i recommend everyone who listens to this podcast check out imagine and and the work they're doing and their ceo network i think it will be great so yeah let's just take it away into the future of business Good morning, Paul and Valerie. Thank you so much for uh, for coming and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Today, today we're going to talk about how to turn sustainability into business opportunities. And um, what sort of leadership is needed to implement those these changes? Um, so, Paul, I, I have to start with you. Because you, you started with sustainability way ahead of everybody else. I mean, it, it wasn't even called sustainability for most of the people. I mean, of course, it came from the 80s. But already, you know, you're one of the first CEOs of multilateral that said we need to fight inequalities and, and combat climate change and earn money at the same time. Wh- why? Yeah, first I want to dispel a little bit that I was the first one. We had Rachel Carson with uh, the Silent Spring that was already in the 60s. And then we had Ray Anderson, from, you know, which uh, put his company, uh, corporate company, uh, interface into a uh, different spin. We've had the Rio conference, the Rio Plus 20. So I think people have started to realize that uh, our growth, our economic growth has to be in sync with uh, planet Earth. Uh, planet Earth provides about $125 trillion of 
resources to our existence and frankly we could not have successful businesses if we don't live in sync now and for generations to come and then you had obviously your wonderful leader uh, Gro Brundtland uh, who was uh, chairing the commission and put the definition of sustainability out there now and for generations to come living in harmony with people and planet and I think that definition is still very valid so I would hate to say that uh, we were the first ones um, the reality is uh, it was very clear when I took over as CEO of Unilever in uh, about 11 years ago now that uh, the growth models that uh, were existing then were not sustainable. Uh, high levels of uh, government debt, private debt, uh, overconsumption by a very small part of the population actually and leaving too many people behind. So when we talk about sustainability, it's not only the environmental side of that but it's also the social side of that that is equally important to me. So we decided to, at that time, if we wanted to be a company around for the long term, you can only be around if you make a positive contribution to to the world. But well, let me challenge you on that, because it, when you're t saying this, it sounds very easy. You know, like, yeah, yeah, of course, this is obvious. But yeah, we, we have to create a better world, and if, if not, the world will, you know, will not survive. But if it would be that easy, everybody would have done this 10 years ago, right? So I'm well, interested in why did you sort of... Because you also got reactions or, you know, the beginning of Unilever, you also got sort of, okay, now he's stopping with the quarterly updates. Um, it's not possible that the, uh, the stocks fell the first time, you know, like, and then you're coming, sort of going through it and you're delivering a 240%, I think, uh, return for the... Uh, 300. For the, yeah, three, okay. But who's counting? <laughs> I, I mean, like, but this is a good point, right? Like, so, so I really want to understand what was the motivation? How could you do this? You know, like, and this is what the listener are uh, wondering, why should they do it? And because, it's... Um, so, which is a very valid question. The, the reason we started was, and was very clear, perhaps uh, to me more so than perhaps others, that, um, that the current growth models were unsustainable. And uh, when we started about uh, 11 years ago, the facts were probably not all available to us. But even if the facts are not available, and you know some things are the right things to do, you still have to do them. Now it's easier, 10 years later, it's easier to answer your question because especially in the last five years, we've seen that these more sustainable, more equitable growth models are also good for business. Businesses that incorporate their thinking about climate change and bringing that into their value chain. Businesses that think about sustainable sourcing. Businesses that are more gender diverse and have a, a better uh, social compliance, invest in training, ensure that everybody can develop themselves, what's the value chain on human rights or child labor. Uh, we can now say uh, after uh, the 10 years that uh, we have the hard facts that it actually drives businesses. Mm -hmm. Businesses that have a, a stronger purpose and better understand why they're here beyond just shareholder primacy are doing better. And um, so it's an, it's an economic reason. When I started 10 years ago, uh, and and uh, it, it probably wasn't that obvious because the facts were not there. People were a little bit skeptical. The Milton Friedman shareholder primacy was uh, was very strong. But I always felt that uh, when I when I took over Unilever, the company wasn't doing so well. We were actually going down in, and, and we weren't growing. Uh, we actually had become victim of these financial markets and had become very short term. 
So indeed, the first thing I had to do was send a strong signal that we were going to run the company at the longer term. So I abolished quarterly reporting, I abolished guidance, and not surprisingly, the share price went down about 8%, put a lot of angst in the system, because people felt with that track record that was there that more bad news probably was coming when you do these things. But at the end of the day, it provided the space, because if you want to run a company for the long term, you have to provide space to your people to do the things for the long term. Instead of chasing these quarterly targets and earnings per share, which are important, but they are certainly not important on a 90-day basis. 75% of the CEOs in this world think that uh, because of the pressure on the short term, they're actually making the wrong decisions versus what is good for a company for the long term. And I've seen many examples of that. So the first thing I did was I have to run this company for the long term. If you run it for the long term, then the second thing you have to do is, is to say, that means that it, all the, the multiple stakeholders that you have in a company need to be supportive of what you're doing. Uh, the shareholder returns, which are important, are a result of what you do. They cannot be your prime objective. You know, it's not different than the white blood cells in your body. You need white blood cells to live, but you don't live for your white blood cell. And we are we are going to come back to the stakeholder under yeah. uh, shareholder yeah. return yeah. in a bit, but I want to turn to you now, Valerie. Uh, so how does it look from outside? You know, like Paul is obviously, you know, saying it from his his version. How does it look from an Oxford perspective, if you want? I mean, sure. I think what, when we, you, I think your question was around kind of what is the leadership qualities, right? Exactly. That it takes. Yeah. So if we, you know, if your people who are listening to this now are CEOs of companies or, or executives and, and leaders in business, and they're thinking, okay, I, I want to run my company for the long term, right? I want to uh, to think about, as Paul said earlier, the, the idea that says um, we, we can't continue to operate in a world that isn't around to sustain us. So there's still the logic of that yeah and I want to offer it the long term and then therefore the service stakeholders so I think what he's in what he's talking about from his own experience as a leader is something that we are starting to see more and more leaders doing and so um, you know I like how Paul talked about it he talked about it as you know you got to provide the space uh, for your people so when he was moving to say we we're going to abolish quarterly guidance on that what he was saying was that is a tactic if you will as part of a broader strategy that we see of leaders which is let me provide the space for us to be long-term multi-stakeholder. It's interesting because we, we talk about Paul as being such a, um, a key leader, um, and he really has been and is continuing to do now on the forefront of that with Imagine, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later. But I think one of the things that we're starting to see is that it's not that unusual anymore. Mm-hmm. More and more leaders, and I've seen this when I was um, and I, when I teach also at Oxford, we see it in the work that we're doing now with Imagine, with CEOs, um, that people are waking up. So was 2019 a, a turning a turning year? Did it turn in 2019 for real? I mean, like we at least the feeling was that many more was yeah. now getting on to the, the wagon, so. so to speak. I mean, when uh, we were in Davos um, a few weeks ago. I mean, it was really interesting that when I first started looking at purpose-driven business and who are the leaders in this, and we do see that it is important to start with the individual leaders. I think your question was right. Tell us, Paul, how you, the person, right, got into this as a space and, and what, what motivated you. 
um, because companies are made up of the leaders, yeah? So when I first started looking at purpose-driven leaders, and I founded an institute called Beacon, um, and we of course were looking at who are the beacons in this space, and there was a guy called Paul Pullman, right, is one. Um, and then there was a handful of other people, and we would talk about them by their first names, right? We might say, oh, remember uh, Indra? You know, when she was at Pepsi and she was similarly like, you know, working with her general counsel to get say, no, the purpose of the company is to be here longer term. And this is we're here to serve society. So there was a lot of people who were in the debating the Milton Friedman ideology. I mean, I remember I, I even hosted a debate in Davos where we said, OK, let's take on Milton Friedman. The business of business is just business. And the conversation there was um, was we were still struggling with that as a paradigm. Yeah. What we saw this year was that multi-stakeholder business and purpose-driven business was everywhere. So now, could you say that Davos is reflective of all of the leaders of all of the businesses of all of the world? No. Obviously, that is a subset of people who are coming together and they're part of that community. But what I found was really interesting there was there was almost like a pop. For me, it felt that way. I don't know, Paul, if you felt the same way, too. Like, it went faster than we thought right. in terms of, oh... That's really this. And I remember walking down the promenade in Davos and looking up and seeing a big, um, a big sign. <laughs> so it was literally a sign that probably enforced this. And it was um, put up by someone we would say is also very much thinking this way, um, a B-team leader, uh, Mark Benioff, right, from Salesforce. He is a B-team leader, right? Yeah. And uh, so Salesforce has this big sign up on the promenade in Davos, and it has a quote from the founder of the World Economic Forum that essentially is saying, the purpose of business is to serve society and multi-stakeholders. And that was normal. And the other piece I would mm -hmm. just say about this to your question of kind of like, what is this leadership thing, is that other people were talking about it. So when you wrapped the week in Davos, what people were saying, boy, was, well, two things dominated. One was climate change which is where Paul started. There's an awareness of silent spring and there's an awareness of like, you know, the, what's happening in terms of our ecology and our environment. So there was climate change on the agenda and everybody was also saying, wow, multi-stakeholder, purpose-driven business, that's kind of the new thing now. Well, now, is that reality uh, in terms of the business? Exactly, because that is the question I have, because I think on one side, you're cor correctly right that, of course, there are companies now that are looking at purpose-driven activities, but they will always, at least, um, you know, for all foreseen, you know, for the future we see, it will be, um, the economic growth will be important. And I'm, I'm, I mean, like, I'm, I'm just, one of the quotes I remember from you when I listened to you in New York this autumn was, uh, half the money in this world has zero or negative interest rates. So basically, it should be possible. I think that's the way Correct. we see it. I mean, do purpose and growth come together? Correct. Because we don't have growth uh, to Correct. a big extent compared to you know some years back, at least not in Europe, Correct. right? So, yeah. so, so, so the, the, the two things that have happened which are quite different now than perhaps 10, 15 years ago or so is that, um, first of all, this, this false trade-off of economic growth and environmental protection and social protection uh, is, I think, increasingly proven wrong. In order to have economic growth, we have to take care of our environment to do that, our natural capital as well as our social capital. Uh, we see countries, major countries like China, where their growth is limited because 80% of the water is polluted or the land is degraded or air pollution is there and people cannot move in the cities. We see cities like Delhi in total lockdown. 
we see people prematurely using their losing their lives as a result of that. So I think people have started to realize that because of this enormous economic growth that we've had, this opportunity to lift more people out of poverty than any time in human history, we unfortunately have done that in a way that is unsustainable. That wasn't the case 30, 40 years ago when we were still more or less in balance with planet nature. Now Earth's overshoot day, which is the day that we use up all the resources that this planet can replenish, is July 29th, and that day comes forward every day. We're using about 60% more resources than the world can replenish. And people have realized that being either in, in, in fight with nature is not a fight we're going to win. And people have realized that an economic growth model that excludes too many people is not a fight to win either. We have um, economic systems that don't function, then business cannot function. We're now living in a time period that people are in the streets in many countries, where every day we are reminded of the costs of, of natural disasters, which is over $1 trillion now uh, a year, and, and the numbers rising. Uh, the cost of climate change is estimated at $5.3 trillion. We're able to measure that. And at the same time, so, so we see people speaking up in the streets, employees walking out, uh, consumers putting their, their money where their mouth is and being more selective in what they buy, uh, people deciding for which companies they're going to work now um, and for which companies they're not going to work. So these pressures have all built up. And uh, and at the same time, we've seen technology develop. But that, but I just want to stop you there a, a second, because I think what you're saying now is important. So, I mean, as we used to see perhaps the authorities or the government regulating, that was the driving force. Now we see the consumers, the, but also the, the investors and, you know, the finance sector, because, as um, well as the, uh, as the government, right? So we have three forces at the same time. And I think but that the is reason that these forces are there, and uh, including, including now increasingly so the financial community, is because it makes economic sense. Exactly. And that's why they are getting in, because ultimately to change the system, you have to actually do that from within the system, and the economic forces are still very, very powerful. So now, now we're at a point, I think, that um, that the implementation of the sustainable development goals, if we keep it a little bit broader, actually makes a lot of sense. We created this commission of the Business and Sustainable Development Commission that we asked uh, Mark Malloch Brown to lead. And what we found was, when just looking at four areas, food and land use, uh, mobility, energy systems, cities, and health and well-being, we found that uh, an opportunity of about $12 trillion and an, an opportunity to create 380 million more jobs. People started to realize at all levels, governmental levels, business levels, civil society levels, that this actually was a very, very uh, positive business plan to put ourselves behind it. In Unilever, in the last 10 years, I've tried to implement the sustainable development goals in everything we've done. We've had a 19% return on invested capital all the time. We outgrew our industry mm. at twice the level of our competitors. We had a 300% total shareholder return. So it certainly has been very profitable. I think the fact that we are not addressing these issues at the speed that is needed uh, makes it actually more financial interesting, unfortunately. But um, the issue that we now have is, as Valerie was mentioning, 
most people are aware of what needs to be done. There are very few CEOs who want more unemployment or inequality, more people going to bed hungry, more air pollution. There aren't no, many, but so, so the CEOs are aware. So they're all moving and they're talking right. multi-stakeholder models, they're talking purpose. But what we now need to do is move at scale and speed. We're in actually the most dangerous mm. part of this transformation, like any major transformation, where people realize that things need to be done, where they're starting to move and collectively think we're doing enough. But we're actually up against a time scale that is requires far more drastic right. and urgent action. And you're starting to see that. The $10 billion pledge of Jeff Bezos uh, yesterday, the UK saying we're going out of combustion engines first by 2039, then two weeks later actually making it uh, earlier. Right. Um, you know, so this major transformation. Let me bring in Valerie. I'm just going to bring it down to the Norwegian context for one second, and then I bring you in to comment this because I think you have a very important, um, you know, uh, ways to look at this from from yours, you know, from the scientific side as well. Um, I mean, because we get the question, like, we hear these 12 trillions and 5 to 7 uh, bill, uh, trillion or whatever, you know, like, these are running around. And then often we get in the UN Global Compact Norway, we get the question, okay, but what does it mean for me, right, like, for my company? And Unilever is such an example. I mean, there are so many examples when you start looking at it, but and, and but still the, the narrative, as you were saying, the space we were talking about is, for, for some are not there yet, you're right? Well, so one of the examples that we often use is, for example, of all the food in the world, it's only 2% come from the ocean. Norway have been one of the food, the largest food produ producers with regards to the ocean. Obviously, it's a huge opportunity. It's at almost tripled in just 10 years, the export of fish and another uh, seafood. Another example is, of course, the, the ocean wind energy from, you know, from wind. Norway is going from being an oil uh, producer and gas producer, very big one still. Only out of 200 million that get um, energy from Norwegian uh, Equinor, only 1 million gets renewable. Yeah. So, but they are now moving towards the International Energy Agency is saying, I mean, they are talking about we need 15 times as much uh, wind power in 2040 as of today. Africa. That's a great business opportunity yeah. for yeah. people who yeah. move fast. Right? And, and Africa as well. I mean, they're only using 1%, one, 1% one of the global solar energy potential. Can you imagine? If I, were, I would go to Africa <laughs> if I was doing solar energy, right? So but it is not uh, difficult to see the enormous opportunities. If you are a country like Norway and you're in the fishing business, you don't want people to eat plastic. You want people to eat fish. So I think yeah, it's in Norway's interest well to not have more plastic in the oceans than fish. You also want the fish to be in the oceans. We're losing our natural species. About a million species are now in extinction, and many are in the marine lives. So the warming up and the acidification of the oceans, the disappearing of the coral reefs, I don't think it's in Norway's interest either. So um, you want to protect your forests who provide an, an ecosystem. You have, you have a lot of uh, green energy yourself coming from hydro dams. There's a, there's a natural system that supports that. You want to keep that intact. Business gets these services now for free, but if these services are not there anymore, they discover. Your maritime ships, you're a shipping nation. You know, if we want to stay below one and a half degrees, which I think most of the world is heading to and has decided that, then the shipping needs to convert to a more um, energy-friendly form of transport. The companies that do that will, will be 
beneficial. If the Norwegian fleet doesn't transform it, then itself it will be obsolete and other countries will take that over. So in any industry that you look at, if you're in the food industry now, in Unilever alone we were probably incurring every year was my estimate three to four hundred million dollars of the cost of climate change. So if you're in the food business, you want to start thinking about sustainable and regenerative agriculture. More importantly, not only on the environmental side, I want to stress again the social side. You're seeing yes. a lot of tension in politics. The reason that you said, uh, rightfully so, Kim, that it's difficult for politicians to do things, mm. you have to go back to the question, why is it difficult? And the reason it's difficult is that people feel that their issues are not being addressed at the speed, so they are getting more polarized in politics. Politics becomes more populist and nationalist, and we're not seeing the, poli the politicians in this world getting together to address increasingly more these global issues of cybersecurity, financial markets, climate change. Because that's that's what uh, Knut, the producer, just gave me. It was just the question, like, how, how does it look, the resistance, Valerie, from, from nationalism, uh, you know, protectionism, uh, the B word, we are not going to talk about it here. We are in London, if anybody was wondering. Um, I so, just printed. You know, uh, yeah. Everybody else is printing. <laughs> I just printed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, these are forces, right? So, yes, protectionism, yes, right? You know, there is a kind of a natural, let's buckle down, let's protect ours. But the, we're talking about companies right now that are operating in a global system. And so, once you do take the, the systems view, right, which then says, okay, here's kind of what the ecological and the social system that my business is operating within. Then going to what Paul was just saying, people then start saying, well, okay, if I'm in the food business, right, if that's my industry, yeah, then I'm looking at my piece of where is the need and where is the opportunity. Yeah? So you could say, well, what's happening at the global space in terms of the geopolitical environment or that it, it's not an excuse. I think, in fact, it, you know, for companies that are saying, you know, what's my role to play in the world? Yeah, um, For leaders who are listening to you now, who are then saying, okay, I have a company that's in a space. I then need to build my company for the long term. I want to do that in a way that is meeting the world's needs. So if I'm in Norway, right, as Paul, I think, very well articulated, there's incredible, enormous opportunities for me as a business. What I would also go back to is one of the things that we're saying is, Leaders, if you want to move fast on this agenda and say, can I see some of the business opportunities, sometimes it's about joining together across the industry and across the value chain. So one of the things that we're focusing on with Imagine, and Paul can talk about this, I think, very well also from his experiences when he was CEO of Unilever, was those leaders who were then saying, okay, it's not just what can my business do, that's the enormous opportunity that is this intersection of what does the world need, where is the kind of you know zeitgeist going because you know and move in that direction, but then how could together others in my industry potentially collaborate to move the boundaries together for exactly. us. So the pre-competitive space becomes very important. And I think that one of the things that we're really seeing is that this is the next edge of leadership, is companies coming together, CEOs coming together to say, what is it that we can do together that we couldn't do alone? And it just might be worth Paul sharing a couple examples. And I think that is, I mean, like, so we are, we've been using like, you know, stakeholder return in sort of instead of shareholder return, right? And how do we, 
how, how do we set up the stakeholder uh, work? I mean, how do we create uh, across industries and together with universities and different kind of, and I mean, the, the UN Global Compact is such an example. I mean, of course, ask uh, you to talk about both about the Global Compact and Imagine, Paul, but before that, just, so we had a reflection on this when we started, uh, you know, recently in Norway, the UN Global Compact Norway, and what we saw is that the, the global action platforms of, of the Global Compact does work quite well on ocean, for example. So we are now trying to set up seven national pl action platforms in a Norwegian context on everything from the Arctic, which we hope to, you know, to become regional over time, uh, to circular uh, business models. And we were thinking, like, this have to exist in the Norwegian context. And to be honest, there are very few initiatives that go, you know, across industries and sectors. There are a lot of association based on, on each of the sectors, right? So I think this is, um, and I'm, I mean, j just to, I'll, I'll, I was looking around, so how does it look like? And one of the reports I found on was the CDP carbon major report from 2017. And that report found that more than half of global industrial emissions since 1988 can be traced to just 25 corporate and state-owned entities. So your point about the CEOs are important, and there are relatively few CEOs that can actually change this world. I think that goes straight into the to the the stakeholder and the uh, you know across industries approach. So uh, with that sort of introduction to this uh, topic, this part of the conversation, yeah. Paul, how do you look at this? So I mean, there are three parts of your question, and uh, let me just very quickly go into that. The first one is. I'm happy with the speed and scale you've put up the UN um, Global Compact in Norway. You know, I have 150 companies, uh, very uh, big and respectable companies there. And uh, within a short period of time, you've been able to create a value proposition that seems to be attractive. The second thing is the UN Global Compact globally is an enormous network of 13,000 companies now and growing fast. And, and these uh, knowledge platforms or these action platforms, as we call them, are incredibly important because uh, we're able to take the best practices and the tools on how to implement in a very practical way and make those available to every company. So if it is how to make the global goals local actions or how to implement uh, climate action or uh, gender diversity or oceans that you refer to, there's an enormous amount of knowledge. And what we find is that the uh, uh, members of the Global Compact tend to do better. Uh, these are companies that are probably more responsible anyway, more aware of what goes around, but they tend to have a better performance than, than companies that are not members. So I'm glad you're doing that. On the third point, which is equally important, is the focus. In the absence of our politi uh, political environment giving us the answers that we historically were getting, we have to fill that void, and that, fill, that void mm -hmm. filling has to come from the private sector mm -hmm. in resources, in money, in innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the numbers that you mentioned, mm -hmm. the top 100 companies, if you look at that, is actually accounting for 71% of the carbon emission. So focusing on uh, sectors especially to drive these transformational points are very important. As Valerie pointed out, if you're a CEO of any company, you have limitations. You have obviously needs of multiple stakeholders, but you have limitations. There's only so much you can do. Individually, you can't change the fishing industry, or individually, you can't change the shipping industry. Um, 
you know, so there are things like how do you convert agriculture to sustainable agriculture? How do you solve the recycling problem of plastic bottles? Uh, issues like that that are fundamental have to be done collectively. So going together is a very important thing. The most effective way for business leaders to go together is to look at it on industry level. Because at industry level, it's a little bit more practical. You share the common uh, objectives. And frankly, nobody wants to lose out. So you create a race to the top. If people see companies converting within your industry and being successful, they want to be part of that. And I think you're starting to see that. When the tech industry made the announcements to make their data centers, which use an enormous amount of energy, make that green energy, within a few months you saw the Apples, the Microsoft, and everybody in between making announcements of billion-dollar conversions to green energy because it became a differentiating factor. Also became cheaper because of the economics behind green energy now. So industry sector transformation is probably the most uh, effective way of doing things. And if you're a country like Norway, you, I believe, have a competitive advantage because with the scale sometimes might work against you, but in this case it works for you. You have the same culture, the same objectives, high concentration in a few industries that can actually create tipping points. Mm -hmm. So if you bring your industry together around these common objectives, may I say for humanity, then actually you can achieve quite a lot of things. You can change the face of the shipping industry. You can change the face of the fishing industry. I also actually believe that you can change the face of the energy provision industry for Europe and set an example of what a European grid of green energy could look like. Well, I, I think this is a very valid point. Like, how do we identify tipping points and attack them uh, in the right Absolutely. way? You know, Absolutely. so this has been done in the, the, the Global Ocean Platform, the Global Compact, you know, like, and we are trying to do the same now, but then across sectors in the Norwegian context, you know, what are the five tipping points on circular business models? Because Norway doesn't, and unfortunately doesn't have a national strategy like 13 other uh, European countries right. on circular, right. you know, so how can right. we then push it forward towards the government? So it's a great you opportunity know. now, Kim, because you have the European Green Deal, and although yes. you're half in, half out, of them, but, <laughs> but um, you can take the best of both. Uh, you've actually taken the lead on mobility. You know, you have more uh, Teslas running around in Norway than in the rest of Europe. You've put the stations there. You've provided green energy for free. Uh, if you go now to Oslo to the uh, airport, it looks like a, a Tesla, Tesla car deal. <laughs> um, so you have actually yeah. had policies yeah. to transform part of your economy. Also, your financial market, yeah, your Norges uh, investment fund has made quite some decisions mm. to go out of coal, to decarbonize, and has been a catalyzer for change for the financial market that you shouldn't underestimate. So I always say a smaller country, I come from the Netherlands, a smaller country can experiment, can move faster, can rally quicker together, and can show the world what can be done. The example that Norway has taken, including in its foreign development, if you took at uh, Norway's uh, um, help in, uh, in the red funds or the forest uh, protection, uh, making these funds available, helping countries from Brazil to Indonesia moving forward, you have a footprint that is infinitely bigger in driving change than many of the big countries themselves. We'd love to come back to the, the Food and Land Use Coalition report that you've been part of creating as well. But before that, I, 
I think it's a very valid point what you're pointing to the Netherlands and what they can do. And just like the UK, they have established a green finance initiative. It's trying to pull the whole sector, I mean, across sectors together, both pu public and private, right? So so we we invited to a summit in Norway, the UK Norway summit on, uh, on green finance. And we were surprised, to, I mean, a week before the event, it was already completely full. Oh, 40 CEOs had signed up. You know, so it's it's a big in interest. But yet again, this is an area where Norway doesn't have any public policy. So the sector has come with some proposals. But yet, like you're saying, specific, you know, we could do a, perhaps a blue finance initiative in the Norwegian context, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's sort of making absolutely. it nationalist. But, but I want to bring in Valeria a bit as well, because... And, I, I and think you're yeah. talking about the imagined theory of change. So exactly. you can bring in... Yeah, yeah really as <laughs> that's, well. I mean, kind of we are here due to your cooperation as well, the two of you, right? So perhaps we, let's... Yeah, it's, it's not just us as well. And and what we're here to do is is to accelerate those CEOs and those leaders within their industries to accelerate the transformation as we need. I mean, Paul was saying it earlier, and I think he, he framed it in an interesting way, too. He says, and we're actually at the most da a dangerous point in the transformation because people think, oh, we need to do something, but then what is it that we actually do? So for us, it became pretty simple. It was saying exactly as you were just saying, it says industry can move. So individual CEO, yeah, create the space within their own organization, yeah, whatever that your company in the service of the long term. We're here for the multi-stakeholder. Let's get the lot, you know, the profits as an outcome of us saying what does the world need and putting our business in service of society. They're getting that business logic right, and then putting ourselves in, in uh, where we can say where is it what the world needs and where can we win in the process of that. So everything at the company level, then within the industries, and we've talked about food. Um, you could say forest. We're also working on fashion, mm -hmm. uh, and we're doing it because it's fun, too, as well. Because um, we're saying that we, it actually is, right? If you can bring a group of CEOs together within each of these industries to say, we can then create the enabling environment now that lifts the floor for others in our industry, and then as you were then articulating, what does that then do for the regulatory and the political environment? So it's the courage of the individual leaders coming together within their industry, and you could say them within Norway specifically, that can then help to change the regulatory environment and give the political leaders more courage. So that, in a nutshell, is the imagined theory of change, which says you can have the, it, it starts where you started the question, which was, Paul, what made you, as the leader, start to think and act in this way? Then what did you do? Yeah. So you did it at a company level because, as Paul would also say, companies change industries. Yeah. Then within the industry level, what is it that we can do that pulls us together, that moves the industry faster, further for others? And then how can we, um, as those kind of first movers, start to then change the regulatory environment as well? So that's the very simple, clear theory of change on that. And we also see that there are what we would call courageous CEOs who have been there, done that, like Paul and others, who are freed up once they're not leading these big businesses anymore, who then are wanting to say, can we come and be a part of helping accelerate the transformation in some of the industries with other CEOs. So imagine as creating a CEO circle of people like Paul and others who have been there, done that, walked the talk, right? had the hard conversations with, you know, with others, with your multi-stakeholders and your leadership teams, who can then coach and work with CEOs of other leading businesses and help pull together some of these transformations across the industries. And then what we're seeing as well is we saw with the Fashion Pact um, 
as a kind of one of the first initiatives that we focused on. Okay, just a lo- what is the fashion pact? Just so for our listeners that haven't read up on this. I'm happy to share. And I'm going to ask Paul to share it as well. Because I think it brings to life what we're talking about with um, with Imagine and the notion that says if you get um, collectively, you start to create a race to the top within an industry. Okay. Yeah? yeah. So uh, very simple. I'll tell you the story of this. Yeah? It starts with two guys yeah. in New York <laughs> getting together. And I've, I've got a picture of it. I still think of as well. Um, with um, President Emmanuel Macron, who would ask then Paul um, in several of his capacities that he wears many of his hats for the for the world including uh, of course being one of the co-chairs of the UN Global Compact um, but he had asked to can we help mobilize the private sector around the G7 and so exactly as Paul said earlier is where we're seeing the politicians and the political environment is not able to move but can the private sector do so very specifically, we then said, okay, and there was, and Paul can talk about some of the other initiatives we were looking at, says, what is their collective action that we can get CEOs to sign on to big commitments using a public global development moment like the G7 as a mobilizing and a focusing function, you know, focus, um, forcing function, yeah? So he said, okay, France, uh, it, is, uh, it also stands for fashion, right, in people's minds. Fashion, um, we would say, is not only a um, significant contributor to pollution, uh, to obviously there's human rights issues in the value chain. Um, bottom line is the industry was ripe for transformation. So it wasn't just that, oh, fashion is a dirty industry, although people were waking up to say, wait a minute, what's our footprint? How are we then contributing to the amount of plastics in the oceans through our textile, et cetera? But people were hungry for change, but they felt like they couldn't do it individually. So very simply, we get a courageous CEO. In this case, it was the uh, CEO of uh, Caring Group. Um, and then said, okay, who are the others in the industry across the value chain that would sign on to three commitments? Can we make it something easy enough for people to, to focus on? So science-based targets around climate, uh, regenerative agriculture, regenerative cotton, um, and plastics. Single-use yeah? plastics. Single and so then what we saw what was really interesting was the CEOs and Paul is also reaching out to other CEOs to say, can we sign on to the fashion pact? And what we saw was we had, I think it was 32 is that right? By the time we were uh, in the Elysee. And now 62. And now 62 oh, wow. companies. So it doubled. And, uh, <laughs> and what was interesting is 32 by the time that we got to the G7, but then the snowball kept going. Now companies are saying, oh, I want to be a part of it. All of these brands have come in. And now you can, you can look at it and you can say, okay, um, it's mostly luxury brands. Okay, that's great because those are signaling power too, right? And then you could say, okay, but where are the big manufacturers? So Yes, it's not everything. It's not everyone yet, but it's a really great start. And it's a part of that theory of change that says if you create enough people starting to come together to move, yeah, you then can create a snowball effect and a little bit of the race to the top. And so we are now working uh, with the Fashion Pact and, and kind of holding the, the space for that. Paul is co-chairing um, a group of CEOs that we're putting together around the value chain who now are saying, okay, we signed up to this pact. That's a great start. So now our industry can move in that. What is it also that we could do working together that is significantly transformational? And I think this is an, I mean, another area where I think it's really difficult to see how we can do it on a, on a mass scale, perhaps. And that's why I want to uh, challenge you. I mean, recently, uh, a Norwegian, you know, we, we have to bring Norwegian, uh, Per Fredrik Faro uh, worked on a report for you in the in the Food and Land Use uh, Coalition. Uh, and obviously, agriculture and the use of land, uh, I mean, coming back to the need for more uh, food from, from the oceans. Um, 
is a it has a huge Im impact on on people uh, and the climate. So so how do we get take that agenda forward? You know, we have the Eat Foundation in Norwegian context as well Absolutely. that has done a, a great deal on this. Yeah. But how do we? I mean, because this means a lot for everyone, right? Everything and the, the challenging part is from agriculture to to what we eat. It's a very long value chain, isn't it? So so uh, would like would really nice to get some. Reflection, uh, reflections from you and also if you could you know sort of uh, link it to the, um, the critical transitions mentioned in the report some of them uh, so f so first of all it's again an example where uh, Norway is punching above its weight where you have great people like Per or like Gunhild or like Sven from Yara uh, setting the pace at the global level where Norway also is able uh, with uh, your Prime Minister uh, Erna Solberg is able to uh, add support and financial means where we make it a central part of the sustainable development goals. And, and as a result, Norway once more punches above its weight. What I like about the uh, food and land use system, it really touches all parts of the sustainable development goals. You know, yeah. From goal number one, poverty, you find that basically by monocrop, uh, smallholder farmers, uh, food security, climate change was the enormous amounts of, of food waste and the, w and the way we produce food. It's about 30% of the carbon emissions there alone. On health and nutrition, uh, I don't have to tell you that. On, on women and empowerment, uh, food and land use actually touches all these sustainable development goals. And frankly, uh, we cannot solve uh, the world's challenges if we don't find a food system that's in, in equilibrium with uh, modern nature. And this report, uh, for the first time, brings together all these siloed but important food efforts into one horizontal effort and looks at it holistically, from the way we grow food to the impacts on health uh, to, to inclusion and, and many of the other areas. So we've put in all the major coalitions, like the EAT Coalition, or the Scaling Up Nutrition Coalition, or the Tropical Forest Alliance, we for the first time brought them all together and say, you know, instead of working on each of these different pillars, why don't we look horizontally, just like what Valerie is saying with these industry initiatives, why don't we all sit together and look at it holistically? And we're starting to see quite some systems change coming out of that. The report obviously is showing, uh, you know, the, the different areas where we should be doing that. And we're seeing increasingly uh, traction on that. We're getting companies now behind that that come together and look at the recommendation of this report, uh, which which are from the, the way we grow our food to the to the nutritional uh, uh, dietary requirements, to to the way we attack some of the issues of uh, social inclusion. So it's a very broad-ranging report, but it's getting traction. So now we uh, target countries because at the end of the day the rubber hits the road at country level where things happen. So a country like Colombia, a country like Indonesia that we will be at the end of this week actually, uh, is taking this food and land use report and actually putting that in its national policy. Which brings me back to the question you raised. Uh, ultimately, we're not advocating that business can drive all these changes. We're saying if you get 20 to 30% of the, of the value chain together, you can actually drive tipping points that then attract other companies in fashion from the 31, we're now at 62. Um, 
and it also attracts then the attention of governments. You, you de-risk the political process to put frameworks in place. Governments alone cannot really do that anymore um, because of the political situation, but because they also don't have that that overview of how to do these things properly. Often they get lobbied by people that want to maintain the status quo and self-interest. But if you have a group of 30, 40 companies coming together, a critical mass in a value chain, mm. then you can also move forward. The Green Deal in Europe, the circular economy package in Europe had very much the input in there from responsible businesses. So if you say in Norway, some pieces of legislation are missing, and we could be going so much faster if these pieces of legislation would be there, then create this coalition of these companies uh, to make those suggestions and drive it forward. I personally think that you're farther along the way in Norway than you might give yourselves credit for, so a little bit of self-critique is not bad, but you're doing quite a lot of things that help Norway and beyond Norway but I think on some of the areas that might be important that you've discussed, put these coalitions together and help the government to come in with proposals. And we're looking forward to, in a couple of weeks' time, just to make this really actionable. We've got Gun Hill with the EAT Forum <laughs> coming to, uh, outside of New York um, together with a couple of the CEOs from across the food value chain. And we've got, say, a Absolutely. day and a half that we're together, and we're with one of our mission board members is hosting mm -hmm. us, Sue Rockefeller is there, um, and uh, another one of our mission board members, Susie Cameron, is uh, coming in as well, and you might know her uh, her book, One Meal a Day, which is not saying we should only have one meal a day, although <laughs> I do have people who advocate that is somehow healthy. I can't do that. But that there are tipping points if you move to plant-based, so one plant-based meal a day. Yeah. So we're putting what we call put the system in the room. Yeah, who are the human and beings? some of the biggest food companies. That, exactly, so, yeah, yeah. That are coming together to then say, what could what could those tipping points and those leverage points be? And I think, um, as Paul said, we, we really do see that the companies in Norway are punching above their weight. Yeah, and your and leaders the are The time is right well. for this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's great to hear all the good things going on. But let me end by, uh, by um, a question, perhaps on resistance again. Because what we see in a way that we are on the top three after the U.S. and, and Saudi Arabia on believing skepti skepticism against climate change. Uh, and, you know, that is one challenge we, we see. And another one is that sustainability seems to, like you said yourself, Paul, you know, be everything about the climate. We are, lo are we losing out on, on, on the social part? You know, like, are we losing out on that? And how do we tackle? I mean... It seems like there is a skepticism the there with the, in the consumers as well. I mean, we talked about all the, the yeah. good, good consumers, if you want, yeah. but we also need to talk with the, the rest of the, the, the population. There is a responsibility on the political side to be sure that there's the right narrative around climate change. Even in America, where you have a government that doesn't quite cooperate, 76% of the Republicans uh, think that there's an issue of man-made climate change. Now, it's pretty obvious when 95% of the scientists have agreed that there is an issue. So even in Norway, there might be some skepticism. I'm not so sure that it is around climate change. It might be more on what do we do about it. If you live in Norway, that's such an enormous uh, country. I, I just uh, drove across uh, Russia when you have uh, such a small population in such an enormous landmass, you might not 
it might not bring home mm. on a daily basis what the challenges are. If I would take all these Norwegians and move them to Delhi today and you live in the city of Delhi, you'd probably see them. So <laughs> of course, that's, our, that's our, a good action. Uh, <laughs> our, our politicians yeah. need, to, need to do a job to explain that to people. And I also think in terms of the social side, which you rightfully bring up, climate change actually is pushing more people into poverty. It's the poor people in this world that um, that suffer the most from climate change. And my, some people might not see the correlations, but many of the issues that we have right now of refugees or of wars or conflicts that we see in the world actually trace their roots back to climate change. And that directly or indirectly is also uh, affecting Norway. You've seen xenophobia in your country, and a lot of that is actually coming from not addressing these issues in other parts of the world. So for some people, it might be difficult to see that correlation right away, but that is the job that we demand from politicians as well, that to do a better job to explain that. I tend to believe, I haven't seen your survey, but I tend to believe that if you ask people that if, if the world has an issue on climate change, and if the climate change is a man-made issue, that the majority of Norwegians agree. I've met too many and I've been there too often. If you ask them, does it affect my life right now if I live somewhere in Norway, I can see that it affects you less than many other places, but I wouldn't draw the conclusion that they don't care about climate change. And uh, and you've been able, been able in your politics as well to pass some quite uh, progressive uh, policies around mobility, around your own energy profession, which is all green energy itself, around the role that you want Norges to play. But I agree with you that all these actions itself, heroic as they may be, they now need to be accelerated. And, and it's really what we are advocating is that it is the private sector uh, individually and collectively that need to get together to probably be more of an engine of that than what it has done historically. And it makes good economic sense to do so. With those words, we are ending today's uh, podcast with uh, a focus on the importance of accelerating both private sector and the politicians, I guess, a pitch for a political change. Uh, I think this is so... And where we began, which is that there are people listening to this, yeah? The CEOs, the executives who are in positions of business. So we're talking about these as systems, yeah? The political private sector, the political system. What's the system made up of? Yep, there are people it's working people. in the companies, right? It's yeah. the people. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's the, that is the kind of the invitation for the people who are listening to this, is to remember we can talk about these as big complex systems, but you start to say, what, what is it that I can do, right, from my place in the world, in Norway, in my business, as a leader, if I'm putting myself in service of what the world needs. And you know, so I think that it's kind of what you were saying, too. It's you start with saying, okay, we've got all these big needs and these big ambitions, but what is it that I can do? What's my piece of it? How can I then help my company be in service of what the world needs? How can I say that we are here for the sustainable development goals? That's why we exist. And we figure out our business opportunities that are in, in line with kind of what our power is and what the world needs. What is it that I and my sector could do to bring it together? And then how can I de-risk the political process for others? So it's to start with where you started the conversation, which is the human beings who are listening to this. What's my piece of this? What can I do? So let me rephrase. We're ending this uh, episode with calling on the people, yeah. the politicians and the businesses to take their share and go back to your business. And it doesn't have to be a big thing always. 
but take your share of how to make sustainability into business. Absolutely. And it's more fun too. I think the notion that says sustainability is heavy and hard and it's a, you know, don't do bad things, et cetera. And it's also where you were saying there's a business opportunity, but also there's, if it's a challenge, we like challenge. Human beings and these, you know, these people who are in leadership positions like challenges. So I just say, it's not just to say, well, we got to help do it. It's that when we do, it's more fun, it's more fulfilling. We create the world that we want to see. And I think that's a real enormous opportunity. Thank you, Valerie and Paul, so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Appreciate it.